So today's gospel lesson comes from Matthew chapter 5, continuing on from last week in verses 11 through 16. Jesus speaking. Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt loses its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything, but is thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A city built on a hill cannot be hid. No one after lighting a lamp puts it under the bushel basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts may be an honor and a glory to you. Amen. So we started last week diving into the Sermon of the Mount with the eight Beatitudes. And you may recognize verse 11, we tend to end the Beatitudes there. But that's actually where Jesus begins the meat of the sermon. So he's given his Beatitudes as a summary, and Jesus makes his start. And where does he start? Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and other all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. That's where Jesus starts his biggest sermon. That's how he's going to win the crowd over, right? We touched somewhat on the issue of persecution last week, and I'd like to dive into that a little bit today again, but put, let's put aside issues of culture, of religion, or ethics, or where we stand right or left, and let's just look at virtue in its own sake. It is something that is always resisted even by Jesus's own audience. Pastor Paul, how can you say that? Well, there's a philosopher, I cannot remember his name, but I absolutely love his summary on virtue. He says there's a way you determine how much something as a quality in a person is actually valued. There's what you want in appearance, and there's what you want in reality. And which one you pick on things shows where your heart really lies. You may just want to appear wealthy, but you'd rather have health. You may want to appear truthful, but you may just want the political power. Virtue. It's something we at least want to look like, and it's something that we absolutely must look like in order to do any kind of business. Rich people pay all sorts of money to buy virtue. Swindlers, they lie to buy virtue. And politicians, they slam us with all sorts of propaganda to show us their cause is virtuous. So we know when it comes to all this ethics stuff in the world, what does it mean, blessed are you who are righteous? Who are the righteous? But I'm going to push one lower. I think our actual dislike of virtue is demonstrated 
by how we react to other people cultivating virtue. What do you mean by that? Well, take an ex-liar, someone who has decided that they are now going to tell the truth. What is our most common reaction if someone we love comes to us and says, I've been a pathological liar my whole life? We start to hammer them for the truth. We start to feel hurt. If we really love the virtue, wouldn't we celebrate rather that now that person is going to stop lying? Or what about apologies that we issue to one another? I've done some sort of wrong, I feel bad for it. Nine times out of 10, we don't feel you meant that apology. Or just take a man who stops a vice, a drunkard who decides to put away the bottle. His virtue gets resisted by all of his old friends who now think he's too good for him. But at the same time, culture at wise demands he stand up and confess for the rest of his life that he's an alcoholic. There's an issue here. Repentance gets treated worse than non-repentance. And that's the world Jesus is talking to when he says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. Jesus, if you have any spiritual discernment, Think of the two spirits he's dealing with. You have God on one side. Oh, you've done these sins, all these terrible things. What does God say to that? What does our gospel teach? God forgives that, forgives it freely, gives his son. On the other side, there's another spirit. And what does that spirit say always to the sinner? You screwed up that time. That was it. That was the last chance. You can't go to God now. It makes it so it's a struggle to maintain just the regular secular virtue we have in life. We have insults and manipulations to prevent each other from being good people. You goody two-shoes, you prude, you close-minded Puritan. And you don't need me to tell you to switch on a TV and you'll see that many times we celebrate what corrodes virtue. None of this is new though. The book of Ecclesiastes said, why ask yesterday, why ask why yesterday was better than today. And the author says, it's not from wisdom we ask those kind of things. The world has always been a hard place to be a good person in. And now on verse 11, blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Now we throw Jesus into this search of righteousness. We get religion on top of this. The only thing I can say to that, God preserve us. But also, it means that Jesus in his hearers, in, in telling his listeners from the get-go, is demanding a firm and dedicated commitment to the actuality of virtue. God despises those who act virtuous, but he blesses those who seek him. So there's a blessing here both for those that have and those that seek, but Jesus is making it crystal clear that we must actually have virtue to enter the kingdom. And that being honest is gonna come at a price because there's one thing that calls out hypocrites better than anything else, and that's the reality. And Jesus speaking to fallen men can speak to no one but hypocrites. As an author I quoted last week said, hypocrite, being a hypocrite is the honor that vice pays to virtue. What's this new virtue going to look like? Well, next week we'll get into some of that. 
It's a forgiveness, a lack of judgment. But continuing on, you are the salt of the earth. Okay, Paul, so how does all this righteousness and actually having virtue, how does that tie into being salt of the earth? I'll give you two different examples. Say we had a Christian brother who stole a thousand dollars from you personally. He took it home, he felt racked with guilt, and he came back the next day and said, I'm sorry, and gave you the thousand dollars. How would we actually react to that? Would we forgive him? Would we call the cops? Would we demand punishment? Well, let me give you Jesus' example. Say you have a Christian brother who decides to smack you on the side of the head. Do you turn the other cheek or do you whap him back? Salt. It's the one mistake a cook cannot fix. Christian discipleship needs to be 100% grade salt. It should go down as good and as smooth, Jesus is saying here, as eating a coffee mug full of salt. And there's two key positions here. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? It's no good for anything, but is thrown out and trampled under the foot. Under foot. We are called to be Christians that are worth persecuting. A famous pastor once said that when Paul came to town, he caused riots. When I come to town, I cause potlucks. We, we have to take very seriously this idea that Jesus is saying you will be persecuted for righteous sake no matter what, because it's the only way we can be salty. Salt's got to have a tang. It's got to stick out. It can't do anything but. But the thing is, that's why people want it. You want salt because you actually want to add flavor to something. And I think the thing that most sticks out to me, that's most important here that I want to get through, is that second bit. That if it loses its saltiness, it's not good for anything. We think that if we water down the gospel, we water down our, our virtuosity, our ethics, our stances on things, it will make us more palatable to other people. It'll make it so we fit in. That's not how it works. If you cut back on the spice, the dish gets bland. Nobody wants it. A church that loses its distinctiveness, that loses its ability to be salty, to be stinging, to say something that might be obtuse, loses any ability to thrill its tasters. There's nothing to it anymore. It's like if you give away something for 100% free, no one's going to think it's worth anything. So Jesus is here juxtaposing two different realities. He's telling the people, no matter how you live your life, if you want to be a good person, you will be resisted. Just get that through your heads. But what he's saying here on the second bit is, you have been called to a way of life that is going to put you into confrontation with that. You're not going to be able to just have appearances and try to make the old compromises that you did when you were in grade school. Many of us have sinned to fit in. Many of us have toned down our feelings on something so people like us. 
That is the old ethical world that everyone in the first century and everyone in my middle school dealt with. Because Jesus is making a point that they are the light of the world. An old woman I know, she lived in Miami during World War II, and they used to black out the tops of headlamps and close the shades in case an air raid came. Jesus is saying, if your Christians, if your church is doing anything that I want it to do, you're going to be blasting out Hollywood skylights into the night every single day. And that's the way it is. I find it absolutely fascinating that I can turn on politics, and even though I don't mess in their debates, every single side is trying to grab some sort of benediction. I have people that come to me all the time looking for some sort of blessing that I could put onto a marriage, onto this, onto that. There is this sense and a hunger in people that they're floating out in a murky world and they don't know where to go. And if the church has any spirit in it, it's at least got a flickering light that can attract some moths. And then the question is, what do we do when we get the people actually here? This is the thing I was trying to build towards. I think churches today do very well marketing outside the doors. We do all sorts of good works. But my question to you folks is, what do we sell them when they're upstairs on our second floor sanctuary? What are we going to give those people? Are we going to give them some sort of moral compromise like we've all been used to dealing with? Are we going to just make this another part of the world? Another part of the world where we don't quite confront evil, but we excuse it a little bit. Where everyone comes to church and gets their ego stroked of, yes, you're a religious person, yes, you're a good person, or are we going to push ourselves, and this is a decision on your part, not mine, are we going to push ourselves to actually build the virtues? Are we going to say that we value forgiveness with our lips, or are we going to forgive from our hearts? And that will be, Jesus is saying here, how his church will always decide whether it lives or dies, because it's salt. That decision, when you want the actuality of virtues, when you want the actuality of righteousness, that's something you can't get on the street. That's something that people will taste and will notice. Yes, some of them will not like you, but as I was trying to get at the start, there's people who will not like other sinners. There's sinners who will judge each other. You can't get everyone to like you. And the problem is, if we lose that distinctiveness, then no one will like it. We can't set our moral palates to fifth grader who refuses to eat cheese on pizza or only wants ketchup and mustard on a hot dog. We've got to have some sophistication to the palate. So here again, these words from Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who went before you. You're the salt of the earth, but if salt loses its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A city built on a hill cannot be hid. No one after lighting a lamp puts it under a bushel basket. 
but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Let us pray.